Welcome to the Ron Keel Podcast. I'm your host, the Metal Cowboy. This show is built upon exclusive interviews with celebrities, authors, and entertainment industry insiders. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, hit the like buttons, and give the show a five-star rating. It really does help. Find me online at ronkeel.com and enjoy the show. Access granted. The boy is bound to get dirty when he's playing cowboy. For this final edition of 2020, I want to share some moments from this year's interviews, some of which were not included on the radio show. If you're following the podcast, you've already heard some of the complete, unedited conversations with rockers like Glenn Hughes, Jeff Scott Soto, Mark Farner, and lots more where that came from. In the meantime, enjoy these moments. At the end of this episode, I will share my thoughts on the effects of COVID-19 on the entertainment industry. Best wishes for a fantastic new year, and thanks for listening. I caught up with Chip from Enough's Enough a few months after we toured Australia together in March of 2020. Joining me on the streets of rock and roll this week, Chip's Enough. Hello, Chip. How are you, my friend? Mr. Keel, it's good to uh, hear your pipes. Last time I seen you was in lovely Australia when we were stuck out there on that tour. That's right. You and I were just on tour together, what, three months ago in Australia. Seems like forever ago. A lot's changed since then. I heard you guys had some travel issues. Are you still stuck in Melbourne due to the travel ban? Uh, no, I'm not. Unfortunately, <laughs> I, was, I, I, well, I was stuck out there for about a week. I was hanging out with uh, Kip Winger, and he was stuck out there as well, along with uh, a couple of uh, the, uh, reckless, pr- uh, pretty reckless, I think they're called. Wow. Or, Reckless, reckless love. That's yeah. who it was. Yeah, because there was a lot of bands that were out there when we were touring. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, yeah, this, uh, the guys from the, the Pixies were out there. I know that I've seen them in a club hanging out drinking, and they also uh, had a White Snake and, and Scorpions were out there as well. So uh, a lot of rock and roll happening over in beautiful Melbourne and uh, Sydney, Australia, and the women out there are beautiful. Uh, But anyway, I I was able to somehow find a ticket and get back to the United States. And the day I returned here, I'm in Chicago right now, uh, they announced on TV that uh, they're shutting down the borders. So I, I, I came, I was hours away from being stuck in Melbourne, which folks, believe me, would not be a bad thing. Exactly. What a beautiful uh, country and a beautiful city as well. That was a blast, man. We had a great time down under. And Chip, you and I have known each other a long time, but I feel like we really became friends on that tour. It was Enough's Enough, Ron Keel. Janet Gardner and the Aussie band Cross On. We dubbed it the Amazing Race because we just kept wandering around Australia picking up clues as to where the next show was, what hotel are we at, how are we getting to the airport, all that, man. But uh, what a great experience, and I'm glad we got to share that. I certainly am, too. And anybody that hasn't went to Australia, I recommend getting out there as soon as this all shut down, opens back up again. Uh, what a beautiful country. People are friendly out there and nice. Great rock and roll. The food, the wine, the women, everything about that place is uh, A+. Plus. I just love that country beyond belief. My friend David Reese, the metal voice who replaced Udo in Accept in 1989, shared his bird's eye view of the pandemic early on from his home in Italy. As we speak, David, the entire world is in the grip of the global coronavirus pandemic. Very strange times, my friend. You're in Italy, as you mentioned, certainly one of the hardest hit nations. 
I assume you're isolated like everyone else. How are you and your family doing? And how are you handling this crisis personally and professionally? Thank you for asking, bro. Um, it started off in a little village called Codonio, about 30 miles from me, where I actually record at a studio called Tanzan Studios. The great Mario Percadani, who plays with uh, Hardline, owns that. It's also a music school. And I was actually there recording vocal demos about a week before it exploded. And the next thing you know, uh, some guy turns up with this virus and they shut down his village, his school. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, my wife and I were in there late at night. You know, kids are using microphones, touching everything. Oh, my God. And the guy that caught it first, uh, they closed down his workplace with over 200 people. And uh, his wife didn't catch it. He survived it. But they're still on lockdown. So there's a bridge that divides those two towns, mine and his. There was, you know, armed security there where you couldn't cross over. But, of course, you know, they say, all right, go ahead and get your supplies, whatever. So they started letting a few in. Um, I was supposed to do my record release shows in Germany on the 13th and 14th of March. Um, a week before everything was all systems go my area. And then on the Saturday prior to that, my wife who works in the government actually yelled out loud. Oh my God, they're talking about closing the North down, which is the Lombardy district. I'm sure you're familiar with it. Milano. Yeah. All that. Yeah. And I'm thinking, nah, it ain't going to happen, you know? And by 11 PM that night, the whole North of Italy was on lockdown, which meant only necessary you know, goods to go through the Swiss border. We were going to drive about five hour drive for the shows. And she was going to hang out with me. Probably two days later, Conti announced the whole country was on lockdown. What it's done at first, you know, I'm not going to lie. It was disappointing. You know, ticket sales were great. Um, people are excited about the album. You know, we had high hopes and then boom, it was pulled out from under us and, you know, calling the venues. They're like, Oh, nothing's wrong take the back roads, you know, you know, you can get here. And I'm like, no, man, you don't understand. They've, they've locked us in. And then a couple of days later, the country's closed down. And then of course, all the clubs in Germany and tours started falling apart. I mean, by the day, I mean, 10 shows, 10 tours a day were falling apart. That was pretty weird. But then I, you know, I got over my, you know, poor me thing and went, wait a minute, this is, this is a bad deal. This is, this is for the best. So we are holed up in our home. Um, the two boys and my wife and I, and basically we walk the dog around the street a little bit in the morning and evening. Don't go anywhere. We're allowed to go to pharmacies or grocery. That's it. Cause all other businesses are closed. It's a friggin' ghost town. The highway near my house is really loud. It's, there's nothing moving right now. I'm looking out the window, a few trucks, you know, food trucks and stuff. Uh, it's, it's a really bad time, Ron. Yeah. I went through the LA riots. I went through the Northridge earthquake. I went through the Malibu fires and I thought that was Armageddon, but this, this is just an eerie, frightening time. I don't know really what I think about it. Always cool to get a hall of famer on the line. And my conversation with Vivian Campbell from Def Leppard, Whitesnake, Dio and last in line was a highlight for me. And here's a piece of that discussion specifically for the podcast. Viv, how do you feel about cell phones in the air at every show that we do. Uh, it's, it's really annoying. I gotta say, um, you know, I, I just, I don't understand it. You know, I, I don't understand why people don't want to experience and be in the moment. I mean, that's, that's what life is really about is about 
uh, appreciating the the moment that you have, you know, with with people, with other people, with community, with family, with friends, uh, with live music. You know, real musicians playing real music in a room in real time. That's that's a great joyous communal experience. Um, I understand that people want something to post on social media or some sort of memento from it, but by by watching this show through your cell phone, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And I, when you listen back to it the next day, it's going to sound like shite. So I, I don't get it, you know. Um, and uh, also, you know, the whole social media thing, I, I think, can be very, very intrusive. I mean, I, I find people taking cell phone videos of us all the time, even when we're trying to, you know, scratch our bum or something. Yeah. You know, it's just, I, I, I appreciate uh, human interaction. And I also appreciate a little bit of civility and a little bit of privacy. So I'm not a fan of it. I agree and totally concur, man. I, I don't understand why they, it, it annoys the performers and it annoys everybody else in the audience except the one guy who's who's doing it and posting the video next the next day on YouTube. Uh, another question for you, mm-hmm. Vivian. Athletes, actors, and musicians making political statements. Where do you stand on that? Um, yeah, that's, this is a tricky one. Um, I, I think everyone is entitled to an opinion. Um, but unfortunately I think we live in very polarizing times. Yeah. So, uh, I, I personally, I mean, like I had a personal Facebook page that I, I haven't been on for a few years because I did express, you know, um, opinions beyond music, uh, because it was a personal page and, you know, the, the, the blowback was just brutal and intense. I think, you know, there's a lot of uh, civility and, and human interaction and discourse has has gone in the gutter, you know, thanks to people communicating in, in these very indirect ways through social media. Um, I think we're getting pulled into uh, a time when people have to make that hard choice. Um, you know, even corporations, like even look what's happening with the, the NBA and China at the moment. Yeah. You know, because, uh, you know, so does the NBA and, and the huge corporations like Nike that, that make a fortune with, with uh, concurrent with the NBA. I mean, do they take a political stand on this? Uh, I think it's important. Yeah. Um, I think you kind of have to. I think people are starting to vote their politics with their pocketbooks, you know, like, uh, you know, issues like gun control and um and, you know, gender association and equal equal rights for people. You know, I think some corporations are, are defining themselves by by getting involved in politics. It, it's a very, very complex issue. And uh, I don't think there's an easy answer to it. And I, I think um, it, it's, it's a very dangerous time for any sort of a celebrity, be you an actor or athlete or musician, to... to to draw a line in the sand on that, you know, um, with, with Def Leppard, you know, one thing that, that uh, Joe said to me when I joined the band many, many years ago, um, and this was way before the, the current political climate, you know, he said that Def Leppard has always been about escapism. He says, we don't write political songs. You know, we don't um, proselytize. We don't preach to people. We, we want to offer escapism, you know, like, um, 
like a Spielberg movie, you know, just just kind of like where people can lose themselves in something and get away from all of that real world stuff. And so I, I do think there's a lot to be said for that. You know, and Def Leppard as a band, you know, we are very much apolitical. We just offer entertainment, you know, but as individuals, you know, when we're back in the dressing room, we all have political views and, and we all have moral stances on things. But it, it's it's a very, very <laughs> dangerous thing to 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 use your um your your pulpit, if you like, you know, to use your 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 stature in the world to to try and tell other people how to live. Um, but ultimately, I think you know, as as people, we all get through this. I just think we're in a very very ugly time at the moment. We're we're uh, I think our leadership in in a lot of the world, not just in this country, has, has kind of brought us into the gutter and is trying to exploit the differences that we have. But I think that as, as human beings, we all have a lot more in common than we have that separating us, you know? I mean, everyone has family, everyone bleeds red, you know, regardless of the color of your skin. Everyone just wants to be safe and secure and loved. And I think, you know, as people, we need to learn how to communicate better. And, and as a musician, um, you know, I I don't want to preach i i just want to play guitar and then hopefully music will help heal i find music to be very cathartic um especially in times of stress and and so i'll do what i can as a musician to bring people together and, and try and um hopefully help people realize that that, that love is a, a, a stronger emotion than hatred most of my fans know the song ghost riders in the sky is a signature tune for ron keel band and our version appears on the 2020 release South by South Dakota. It was really cool to hear Outlaws guitarist Freddie Salem describe what it was like recording their classic version of that Southern rock anthem. Now, before the interview, before we went on the air, you had mentioned that you actually knew who I was and you uh, complimented our version of Ghost Riders uh, on our new album, South by South Dakota. You guys made that song into a Southern rock anthem. You played on that session, man. Anything special you can tell me about that tune in particular? Well, um, we were in uh, the studio in Los Angeles, the record plant on when it was on, uh, it's moved since, uh, when it was on 3rd and La Siena. And at that point, we had stepped up the game a bit uh, as far as a little more intense. We we're kind of trying to shy away from the country rock thing for the past couple albums. We were having success with it uh, on tour and uh, because the intensity level rose tremendously. Uh, we changed our uh, stage amplifiers from PVs and the Marshalls. <laughs> we, we were rocking, and, and Huey and Billy were right along with the program. Uh-huh. And, uh, plus, it start, uh, started to run. We started selling out big rooms like Madison Square Garden and the Spectrum and Long Beach Arena and the Forum and so on and so forth. So you can't argue with success, right? Yeah. You know? And uh, forget uh, forget art, artistry. <laughs> 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 We need success. But <laughs> Huey really lied. Huey was the figure out of the band. He was such an intense player in any genre of music. Well, we were in there, and we had chosen different types of producers at that point. Uh, a couple albums before, we used Mutt Lang. Uh, he produced Plan to Win. And uh, 
on this album, we chose another hard rock producer who had uh, pretty big success, and his name was Ron Nevison. Oh, yeah. Huey came up with the Ghost Riders idea, and Ron Nevison ran with it. It took us about eight days to cut the bed track for that song. It just wasn't happening, wasn't it happening, wasn't happening. Finally, after about seven, eight days, it hit, and Nevison knew it, and he was a taskmaster. He would not let anything slip to the wayside. If it wasn't absolutely on point, uh, he would reject it right away. So he just kept massaging him. He brought in some great, great classic background, sing Western background singers that I think a couple of them used to sing with Roy Rogers. Wow. <laughs> and they did, they did the backgrounds, and he brought in John Sinclair, the British keyboard player. Um, uh, that's how it all developed. Okay. The album went gold right away. Yeah. And, uh, it was a good good memory of uh, of that time. I love supporting new rising rockers on the streets of rock and roll, and I asked Las Vegas musician and RFL Records recording artist Jeff Carlson from the Jeff Carlson Band about his online approach during the lockdown. You do a ton of social media interaction and online entertaining. How has that helped you get through this lockdown? Absolutely, a dear friend. Yeah, Oh, I'm sorry I missed that, man. I'll have to uh, scroll through the feed and check that out. I would love to hear that. And uh, once again, I'm speaking with speaking with Jeff Carlson, frontman, singer, band leader, and guitarist for the Jeff Carlson Band. And once again, that that link that's a Facebook group, right? JCB Army. And uh, the other links, of course, the one-stop shop. He's got a great website at jeffcarlsonband.com. Go there and you can get links to all of the social media, the YouTubes, and uh, all of the other cool stuff. There's videos, music, and more. Also visit rflrecords.com for more about the JCB and Jeff's label mates on RFL Records. A lot of great bands on the label with you. Once again, that Facebook group, join up at JCB Army on Facebook. Jeff Carlson, thanks so much for the call, man, for the music, the friendship, and I'm sure we'll be seeing and hearing a lot from each other in the years to come. It's an honor of mine, Ron. Thank you very much. You're more than welcome. Here's another killer track from Jeff Carlson Band, Screaming Inside. Just let it out and let it rock. Hey, that was epic, man. That was really cool and uh, plenty of time to squeeze in the... That was great, man. Plenty of time to squeeze in both songs in that segment and the RFL commercial as well. Good job. Your audio sounds great. You're well-spoken and straight to the point, man. I appreciate that. Well... Well... <laughs> 
dude, if I would do my 16-year-old self, I would be in your garage rehearsing with you right now. <laughs> I know, man. Those are special moments. You know, I've, I've been through that with some of my heroes, like, you know, Kiss and Bon Jovi and, and uh, just hang, you know, rubbing elbows and working with people like that and hanging with them. It's a, it's truly an honor. It's a, a testament to your work ethic and your character and your talent. It shows that you're doing something right. You, you're doing it right. You've got the goods. And I wish you all the best. And can't wait to hear what happens next. My conversation with Don Dockin was not so much an interview, just a couple of old friends catching up. And Don and I can talk for days. Here's just a piece of that discussion. A project like this is as much about the memories as it is the music. How did it feel hearing some of these songs again for the first time in a long time? Oh, it was it was brought back a lot of memories of me in the studio in Hamburg, Germany, and three o'clock and four o'clock in the morning, and you know, doing what we called the you know the when the studio's empty, we're doing we're on the DL, we're yeah. sneaking in there to record. And Michael would engineer, and we just sneak in there and, uh, you know, and do demos. And, but, you know, after we had a record deal, I just forgot about that stuff. I just, we wrote new songs, and I just, it was a, it was a trip down memory lane for sure, because I was trying to remember who did I write this about, and when was this written, and I couldn't remember. And I had to call like Juan Crucier, who did my first tour in Germany in 79. And I said, Juan, you remember that song, Hit and Run? And he goes, yeah. And I go, there's a couple versions of it on the internet, but they're really terrible sounding. You wouldn't have a better version of it. When he goes, yeah, I got the master. I said, you do? <laughs> well, shit, man. Burn it to it. I said, you, you're kidding me, right? He goes, no, I, I got that song. I wrote it. And I actually said, you wrote it? I said, I wrote it. <laughs> and he goes, no, I wrote it. I, he goes, you wrote the music, I wrote the lyrics, and you sang it. So he, he he dug through his files because he still has a studio with two inch, and he dug through his files and he said, and if I can't find it, I'll call Michael Wagner because he saves everything. So that's what happened. He sent me a copy of that uh, by accident. I was doing an interview with Swedish Rock Magazine talking about this record coming out, and and he said, yeah, I've got a copy of your first single your first seven inch single and I said what because yeah my, my brother saw you in Berlin in 1979 and you were selling little 45 singles and he bought a and he bought a couple copies and he gave me one it's in my files somewhere and I went you got to be shitting me right so uh you know he dug it up and and he said now what do I do I don't I don't have a turntable <laughs> wow. he had to go to a music store he had to go to one of those old retro music stores and find a 45 turntable and hook up a bunch of wires and transfer it to a thumb drive to send it to me. So there's all these happy things that happened. And, and I remember it like it was yesterday wow. making those songs. And before I was docking, there was no George, there was no Jeff, there was no Mick. It was just me, you know, by myself working with Drake Levin who was a very famous guitar player in a band called Parker and the Raiders. And uh, they were very big in America. And he took me in the studio and we just made these demos and they just kind of disappeared. And I was in shock to find these tapes. Wow. Who else is playing on these tracks? I guess Juan Crucier, of course, is playing on some of this stuff. Is Greg, Greg Leon, Blotzer, who else is playing on these yep. tracks? Yep. Greg, yeah, Greg Leon's in a couple of songs. And that was the second tour of Germany. 
I toured Germany in 79, was just a three-piece. I was the sing lead singer, lead guitar player, Juan Crucy on bass, Ray Peck on drums, who ended up going to a band called Ballantyne. And the second tour of Germany, Greg Leon went with me, and we did our second tour of Germany with Greg and Gary Holland, who ended up going to Great White. So, you know, it seems like everybody's been a doc in it one or time. <laughs> That's I've right. I mean, you think about it, even Frankie Benelli was in Dawkins for a moment, you know? I mean, wow. a lot of people were in Dawkins back in the day because you were uh, not an L.A. guy. You were more a Tennessee guy, That's right? right, yeah. You were a Tennessee band. Yep. And so, you know, in L.A., everybody was kind of hopping around to different bands, you know? Wow. I'd call Frankie and say, I need a drummer, and, you know, I got a show. And then Juan was playing with Rat, and he was playing with Dawkins, and... Everybody was kind of just musical, Chinese musical chairs. Best-selling author Robert Duncan, former editor of Cream Magazine, was an awesome interview, and he had a very interesting perspective on the pandemic and the future of concerts. I highly recommend his new book, Loudmouth, available at DuncanWrites.com. You've seen a lot of change during your career, man. How do you see the music industry? and especially the live concert industry evolving in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. Oh, my God. It's such a – it's such so sad. I, I, I think concerts will come back. You know, music is this deep uh, need in the human psyche. So concerts will be back. Seeing, seeing live concerts is part of that deep need. <laughs> but it's, it's – you know, what a disaster. I, I live in a – small town outside San Francisco, 7,500 people, and we have several, um, we have several, like, four or five live music venues. A lot of musicians live in this town. A lot of, back in the, when, when Jerry Garcia died, you know, half the town was unemployed because they were all roadies or office <laughs> workers or, or stuff like that for the dead. Um, and, um, and, you know, two of the venues that have been around for, you know, 50, 60, 70 years are now have gone under in mm. our town and nothing, you know, they've been around so long, nothing ever killed them. And they have, they had music um, seven days a week, 365, you know, uh, so, so, so I'm, I'm feeling it, you know, close up and, and firsthand. I think it'll all come back. I mean, you know, uh, and, it may take another generation to him. We may have to wait for young kids today to grow up, and they'll, they'll, they won't know what a disaster it was uh, when concert halls, you know, all concert halls and nightclubs and all that stuff crashed in the wake of COVID. And they'll start, you know, they'll open their own concert halls and and, and uh, nightclubs. So uh, it'll be back, but what a tragedy. <laughs> This is just a sample of what happens on the streets of rock and roll. Find out how to listen to the radio show at ronkeel.com and stay tuned to hear my audio blog on the effects of COVID-19 on the music industry right after this. Ride South. South by South Dakota. The new album from Ron Keel Band. A celebration of the Southern rock tradition featuring classic songs from all the iconic Southern rock legends. The Allman Brothers. Leonard Skinnerd. Outlaws. Molly Hatchet. Blackfoot. Marshall Tucker Band. 
38 special. South by South Dakota. The new album from Ron Keel Band and an unbelievable show. Visit ronkeel.com, highballmusic.com, and hbmentertainment.com and ride south. I've been invited to participate in a new documentary film about the impact of COVID-19 on the music industry, and I wanted to share those thoughts and feelings with you. We're all taught early on that necessity is the mother of invention, right? The only thing that ever stays the same is change, and the COVID-19 pandemic of 2020 changed everything for the entertainment business. Just like 9-11, the assassination of John F. Kennedy, just like the psychopath in 1982 who put cyanide into bottles of Tylenol at the grocery store. You remember that, right? People would take Tylenol and die because wackos were poisoning the bottles in the stores. That led to a new way of packaging. Almost everything we eat or drink or swallow has got protective seals on on it. Every bottle that we buy, aspirin, milk, whiskey, you notice there's an extra layer between you and the product that's meant to keep you safer. Now, people that are younger than 30 or 35 may not even remember or know why those protective seals are on there. But back in the day, when I was a kid, we didn't have any of that stuff. Uh, This has cost the food and drug industries tens of billions of dollars for the last three decades, and it's never going back to normal because we wouldn't feel safe without that little protective seal, right? Just like the live entertainment experience is never going back to normal. Many people are never going to feel safe without that protective seal, whether it's a mask, a six-foot personal perimeter between you and the next person, a vaccine, maybe. But like drugs, food, and drink, we're going to have to find new ways to package our products. Are you ever going to go to a stadium full of 70,000 people at sitting or standing next to a stranger that doesn't have a mask on? Sure, some of us will, but will our attendance be enough to support the cost of producing these events? And just like 9-11 changed the way we travel forever, the fear factor is what gets us groped by the TSA every time we get on a plane, right? You can't even take your bottle of drinking water through security because everything changed that day, 9-11, and it's never going back to normal. Now, we have to be clear, the music industry and the live entertainment industry are not the same. Music is life, man. Music is the soundtrack of our souls. The music industry is a business that sells you those emotions, comfort, excitement, sexual arousal, nostalgia, love, anger, whatever. The live entertainment industry turns those emotions into an interactive public experience and sells you the opportunity to share that experience with a collective, the audience. When you sing along and raise your fist in the air with thousands of other people, you become a part of something special, proving that other people like the same things you like. They feel the same way that you do. You belong. You are not alone. It's not just concerts, but sporting events, movies, conventions, church, other spectator-driven gatherings. The need to gather is primal. It's a genetic necessity that it's been a part of our DNA since the dawn of mankind. Taking that away from us is far more dangerous than the COVID-19 pandemic. 
I don't want to come off as being insensitive to the plight of tens of thousands of people that work or used to work in the entertainment industry. The fear of COVID-19 has wrought irreparable havoc on their livelihoods. Many of these people have devoted years of their lives, energy, time, money, passion into developing a very specialized skill set that is often of little use in the real world. Notice that I said the fear of COVID-19. That fear is far more dangerous than the disease itself because that fear will separate the family of mankind into isolation from which we may never emerge. The next logical step for the live entertainment industry may be to sell the virtual reality experience. You put on the headgear and put yourself into the crowd so it feels like you're right there with strangers and friends enjoying that shared experience. The microphone in your headgear maybe transmits your reaction to the performer's PA system so the performer can actually hear you applaud and scream, sing along, and maybe the performers will even see you on a virtual screen in front of the stage with your fists in the air, I hope. Hell, we're already halfway there, paying to watch holograms of dead singers. These kids that are playing online video games on the couch are all on the same battlefield. They're all shooting each other, yelling at each other, and they're continents on different continents, different states, different, you know, hundreds of miles apart. It'll be the same for the concert goers of the future, interacting with each other and the performers in a safe environment. Nobody drives drunk. Nobody gets sick. Hopefully somebody gets laid. And that's all well and good. For the superstar artists who can afford to present you with their spectacular virtual concert production, young up-and-coming singers and musicians will have to build a following playing the dive bars, so to speak, broadcasting shitty-sounding live streams from their garage or social media, giving away their music for free on the various streaming services, living off donations from their virtual tip jars until they can sell enough tickets to go on their virtual tour. Personally, I'm a survivor. I had my initial impact in the 80s touring with bands like Motley Crue and Bon Jovi. I sold a couple of million albums and had three of them land on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. All of that came crashing down hard in the 90s with the advent of grunge music and suddenly an entire culture was wiped out of existence or nearly wiped out of existence. Pretty much everything and everyone in the commercial hard rock and hair metal industry, including me, lost everything. I survived by reinventing myself as a country music artist, and I survived the devaluation of music as a result of online streaming. The death of MTV and the birth of YouTube and this new normal where the majority of consumers think it's cool to get your music for free. They think it's crazy to pay for it and other entertainment when there's a whole world of free shit right at your fingertips. The strong survived Napster and will survive Spotify and YouTube. I imagine some may try to take it underground. Private gatherings with live entertainment that are against the guidelines and maybe even against the law. Just like our 1985 video, The Right to Rock. When they outlawed liquor during Prohibition, the mob made a killing off the underground bars and speakeasies. So nowadays, with Big Brother watching everything we do, that's not going to be so easy. I admit, 
I was probably more prepared for 2020 than most of my peers. Not because I'm some genius, but because several years ago, my wife Renee was diagnosed with cancer. And suddenly, I was forced to live and work under an entirely new set of circumstances. Extensive travel was out of the question because I was determined to be by her side as she went through chemo, radiation, and multiple surgeries. And with her compromised immune system, sanitation became top priority. Washing hands all the time, wiping off the doorknobs and the light switches and remote controls. So when the pandemic hit, we'd already developed these habits and we already had a cabinet full of surgical masks. But I still had two basic professional needs. I had to entertain people. It's who I am. And I had to make a living. So I figured out a way to entertain and interact with fans online. For my fans, we call them Keelaholics. Uh, They pay a monthly subscription fee at patreon.com slash Ron Keel. And they get all the coolest stuff I can possibly give them. Online interaction, exclusive streaming audio and videos, Concerts, music, live online chat, my radio show, my podcast, my audio book, tons more that I will never post on other social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter. And every day or two, I try and share some cool new thing to entertain these people. And you know what? They've become a community, a tribe, friends. My online subscription site is our gathering place, and it's not even so much about me anymore. It's about all of us. I'm also fortunate to call South Dakota home base, the only state in America that didn't totally shut down. We were able to do some shows in the Midwest like the Sturgis Motorcycle Rally. You know, I believe the rally will never shut down, so I'll probably have at least five shows a year for the rest of my life. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed this. It's uh, the way I feel, and it's what I think. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Ron Keel Podcast. As always, it's a blast, a pleasure, an honor, and a thrill. Thanks for letting me entertain you. Find the Metal Cowboy online at ronkeel.com.